Texas, this is the Trey Blocker Show, starring Charlie Hodge and Trey Blocker, with today's guest, Texas State Senator Jose Rodriguez, and here's Trey Blocker. Thank you, Charlie Hodge, for that wonderful introduction, as usual, and welcome to the Trey Blocker Show. It's a typically, typical, beautiful day in Austin, Texas. Getting a little warm out there. Got a little sweaty walking up back and forth to the Capitol today. Uh, but we are very happy to have on the show today Senator Rod, uh, Jose Rodriguez from El Paso, Texas. Thank you for being on the show. Sunny El Paso, Texas. Sunny El Paso, Texas. What? Well, where's my Where's my fact sheet? Three hundred and how many days? Three hundred and sixty. <laughs> Three hundred and sixty. It is actually on this fact sheet. Uh, El Paso is nicknamed the Sun City because the sun shines in El Paso 302 days per year. Okay, I was off for a few days. Yeah, you know. I'm well, sh- I don't know where yeah. this came from either. Is Our Chico's intern. Tacos still uh, still going strong? Very much so. And El Paso had the El Paso International Hotel, which Steve McQueen, Elvis Presley, and Ali McGraw enjoyed staying at. Wow. That hotel, and I don't know if you know about the whole plaza, hotel i mean elizabeth taylor stayed there she got married and that's where she went in honeymoon in juarez and el paso oh, wow. and stayed at the plaza the old plaza hotel so are there pictures in the hotel yes her yes very nice indeed very nice well to get all of our listeners up to speed with who you are you were a texas state senator from el paso mm-hmm. you were originally elected to the senate in 2010 and you were born in Alice, Texas. That's correct. Uh, which is deep South Texas. You call it South Texas, West Texas. The well, that's South Valley. Texas. I was born South in Texas. Alice, but I grew up in Alamo in the Lower Rio Grande Valley. So I've got a really good friend who grew up in Alice, Texas, and he's a little strange. I, I won't hold that <laughs> uh-huh. against you, but uh, I like it. I like Alice. That's a neat place. So you were the first in your family to attend college. Uh, you went to the National Law Center at George Washington University and got your law degree? Yes, that's correct. And you've been a practicing attorney up until the point you were elected to the Senate, correct? Uh, Well... Still practicing? uh, uh, I did practice a little bit when I first got elected, thinking, you know, mistakenly, that I would have time (laughs) to practice. Right. Uh, My wife is a lawyer, and I said, look, I'll join you, rejoin you, uh, and have the old law firm of Rodriguez and Rodriguez, which I did only for two years, by the way. Yeah. In terms of my 42-year career, only two years in private practice. The rest has been federal government, legal services, uh, right. county, county government, and then, uh, and then the Senate. Well, I quickly learned that this business of being a policymaker in the Capitol, if you are serious about it and you want to dedicate your time to it, will consume you 24-7. And so it took me only a few months to be able to go back and tell her, "Uh, sorry, (laughs) you're on your own. Did she she do one of those, oh, thank goodness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cramping my style. Yeah, exactly one of those. So I really, I I don't practice any law. Once in a blue moon, one of the judges will appoint me to uh, one of these ad litem cases involving a child, you know, and and I'll do that because it's, it's quick, over, and done with, and it doesn't require any long period of time investing time in in a case right well, i'm sure you still get calls from old friends that are like that know you're a lawyer i know you're not practicing but hear me out what do yes, i need to do oh, oh they do what it do all i the need time. to do every, every the free time advice I run into people free advice that's right everybody wants free advice I'm, i'll tell you what i'll tell you a story charlie i went to physical therapy last uh 
Friday, uh, as I'm doing every Friday, although this Friday will be my last. And uh, some lady was sitting there in the waiting room. She says, hey, aren't you, aren't you Jose Rodriguez? I said, yes. She says, well, you know what's happened to me? Social Security. And she right away starts <laughs> going into it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you're right. You uh, listened and smiled and I said, said, yes, ma'am. smiled and said, yes, yes. <laughs> I, lis- I listened to her. Yeah. That's funny. I don't know if you remember this, but shortly after you got elected in 2010, mm-hmm. I flew out to El Paso, and we had lunch at a small little Mexican cafe there in El Paso, set in the, in the corner, and that was some of the best Mexican food I've had in a long time. And I grew up south of San Antonio, so I know what good Mexican food's like. But right. I, I love El Paso. It's a neat place, and it's about as far away from Austin as you can get, it's right? A, that's, a, that's the furthest point west. I mean, literally, we're sticking into New Mexico. And wow. it's, is it in a different time zone? Yes. Mount, it is. Mountain, mountain standard See, time that's zone. that's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Wow. And so you're closer to... Hold on, hold on. What does uh, mountain standard time mean? What time is it there right now? Well, it's, uh, it's one, hour, one hour behind us. It's 30... 3.11. 3.11. God. Yeah. I I, I'm not even sure. Which Until by, now, I knew what mountain which, standard time was. by the was. way, is something that here people have a hard time appreciating i mean you know people schedule meetings they schedule hearings they Mm. schedule this and they don't realize that for me given the limited you know airline schedule that we have in el paso uh imposes a hardship for example i now am starting to come back on sundays instead of monday mornings because the flights have changed in el paso and so if i want to if i not if i don't want to be late as i was last monday uh, then I better come on Sunday, and and, mm. and to come on Sunday on a direct flight, that means I gotta literally go to the airport at uh, no later than noon, oh, and wow. so that kind of kills you know half of my Sunday with the family, right? If only you knew a senator or somebody but, that could do something. About well, that. yeah, if only I knew. Yeah. This this part time job really isn't a part time job, is it? No, it's right. not. Somebody's been lying. <laughs> um, but El Paso is closer to two other state capitals in the U.S. than it is to the Texas state capital, and I believe it's closer to two capital cities in Mexico than it is to Austin. Absolutely. I got that right? Yes, you got it right. It's amazing. So You got it right. New Mexico and Arizona and Chihuahua, right. those three states. Right. And it's, in fact, closer from El Paso to definitely to San Diego and to L.A. than it is from El Paso to Dallas or oh, Houston. That's amazing. I, yeah. I, we stopped in El Paso. My wife and I were driving. We were trying. We made it. We drove all the way to Las Vegas um, uh, leading up to our wedding mm-hmm. just to kind of get out of there, escape the wedding planning blues. And we had an absolute blast in El Paso. Yeah. One of those one night stopovers. Mm-hmm. And it just, it was one of those deals where we, we checked into the hotel. And nothing scheduled happened. It was just like somebody came by and we followed them. And then it was just, it was a really great night. Sure. Good. I'm glad to hear that. So given the fact El Paso is, is literally so far away from the most of most, the rest of Texas, I don't think most Americans understand the vastness of Texas, but how do you feel the culture differs uh, in El Paso from the rest of the state? Well, it's, it's, it's totally different. Uh, for one thing, El Paso is isolated in terms of distance, but it is a, people don't realize how big that community is. El Paso has a small town sort of atmosphere to it. 
Uh, everybody knows everybody. You can't hide from anybody. <laughs> uh, the population is what? Uh, uh, well, it's uh, the city is now about 720,000. Okay. Uh, the county is 866,000, I believe. Um, it's, it's, and then you got Juarez literally a stone's throw away from El Paso. Right. You make a wrong turn on I-10 in one of those exit ramps, as many people do, including myself, when I first moved to El Paso <laughs> sure. 33 years ago, having grown up in the lower Rio Grande Valley, and you make that wrong turn, and all of a sudden you're into the International Bridge, and you got to go over the you bridge because you can't do a U-turn. You can't turn <laughs> wow. around. Everybody's watching you, and right. you got to go all the way across, get checked, and then come back again. <laughs> uh, but that's Juarez is right there. And so that atmosphere is really a... Uh, what do I want to say? It's binationals, but it's a, really a cosmopolitan sort of uh, feeling to it. People ask me, well, how do you compare that border community with the border community you grew up down in the valley, you know, near McAllen? I said, well, I mean, if you're in high school and you want to go to the bars, you have to go drive 12 miles to get to Reynosa, whereas over here, is, as I said, <laughs> you just take another exit and you're there. You keyed uh, in on the very important things. I mean, that's just to kind of give you a sense of of, um, of how close it is, but but the familial uh, one of the things I learned was the familial ties, the people going back and forth, the bilingualism. I mean, I was surprised that, that so many uh, Anglo Americans speak Spanish and speak it well in El Paso. Sure. Uh, um, I mean, there are some like that down in the valley, but not as many. I figured. As it's more international. Fashion. Yeah. And the yeah. other thing I noticed, by the way, looking at the local newspaper and seeing the wedding notices and the pictures, a lot more interracial marriages there than, than uh, I've saw. Progressive? Uh, yes, of course. How have the uh, politics, I mean, growing up along the border and just, uh, my dad's from Brownsville, and so we were mm -hmm. always um, traveling to visit family. Is Do the politics differ along the border than just your average politics and and are they as apt to change as regular politics can be? Or is it more steady because the border kind of has this way of life? Yes, I think it's more steady. I think it's, um, I mean, th th there's obviously a lot of commonalities in politics, regardless of what part of the state you're from. Uh, but, but there are certain norms and certain customs and practices, if you will, uh, that people observe uh, up in El Paso that, that um, frankly, I, I didn't experience that in the valley where I got my my um, initial experiences with with politics back in the mid '60s up into the late '60s, and uh, before I went off to law school in D.C. and and so in El Paso, I don't know if it's the case in other places. They never did this in the valley, but when I started to run for county attorney in '92, the, one of the first questions at the forums that I got. You know, really penetrating questions was, what high school did you go to here? <laughs> um, That's to be expected, I suppose. Well, I don't know. Really? Is that what they commonly ask? In, I don't remember that in the Valley when I went to forums down there. Sounds like you, you regard it as almost magical. <laughs> like, well, because, I mean, it's a progressive yeah. place that, yeah. where the politics are, are different and, uh, yes. and it's more open to the future, it seems like. Well, well, you know what, Charlie? I always tell people, you think Austin is progressive. You know, a lot of people have the sense that Austin yeah, is weird. the most progressive city because it also builds itself as being weird. I always tell people that when I went to El Paso, I started to realize 
how progressive El Paso is. And all you have to look is, for example, on civil rights history, and you'll find that El Paso was the first city in the state to do, you know, public housing desegregation, school desegregation. Um, you know, that's where Dr. Nixon is from when he challenged the the uh, the electoral system where they wouldn't allow uh, African Americans to vote, uh, the poll tax, and all those. I mean, all of that took place in El Paso. I mean, the first the first uh, uh, Latino mayor in a large city in the country, uh, Raymond Tejas, uh, is out of El Paso. And in fact, President Kennedy appointed him to be the first, one of the first Latinos, if not the first Latinos uh, ambassadors to Costa Rica. So El Paso has this this thing about it. And people ask me, well, why is that? And I said, you know, the only thing I can think of is that because it's so far removed from the rest of the state and isolated, and it's in a very cosmopolitan area when you count Juarez with about a million and a half people, and then El Paso's population in southern New Mexico, Las Cruces, only 32 miles away, uh, you're looking at a population of anywhere from two and a half to three million Wow. That binational a metroplex. community. It's a metroplex. It is the largest, largest uh, international borders there in the world. I don't know if people realize it's not San Diego. It's not certainly not any of the ports in the valley. But El Paso Juarez is the largest in the world. Wow, that's uh, amazing. Between two countries. So, Senator, why did you move to El Paso? What took you out there? Uh, a woman. <laughs> <laughs> And that's the story of all stories. Isn't that the right? story of our lives? Exactly. It always comes down to a woman, 30, whether it's good or bad. 33 years ago. Out in yeah. West Texas. Out in West in Texas. A town called El Paso. That's well, right. Are you going to sing a Marty Robbins song for us? Come no, on. I'm just going to. Come on. Spoken word. Deliver <laughs> it. But those things you were just listing, all those all those firsts, like uh, the sheriff and the, um, the progressive aspects, was there something that stood out to you when you were young that made you want to pursue... Um, this line of work eventually or made you want to get into law, I guess, in yeah. the first place? Yeah. What, what kind of what kind of got well, you riled up? Well, I, I grew as a lot of kids, Mexican-American kids. Uh, at that time, I consider myself Mexican-American, went to college and I was a Chicano. <laughs> and I still have remained a Chicano, by the way. Um, what does as, Chicano as a, mean? Yeah. The well, term? well that's, uh, that's, the, that's the term that those young people that were involved in the Chicano movement during the civil rights era in the 60s and early 70s adopted to set ourselves apart because we felt like we weren't appreciated in the U.S. and we weren't appreciated by the Mexicans either, <laughs> called us pochos. We couldn't speak Spanish correctly and we kind of had weird mannerisms. So uh, we were, didn't belong over there, didn't belong over here. And Chicano is a term of pride, sort of a lot of people sometimes dispute where that came from. I had a professor at Pan American who says, I don't know why you students are calling yourself Chicanos. You know where that word comes from? I said, no. <laughs> I was the president of Mecha, the Movimiento Estudiantil Chicano de Aslan, which was a movement uh, Chicano student organization. And he said, well, it comes from the word chiquero, and chiquero is like a pigsty. <laughs> I said, he thought, he, thought he was going to set you straight, I get said, all you kids. I said, does that make you proud? I said, I don't understand it to mean a pigsty. I have a different <laughs> meaning for it. You can redefine it. Take a hike, old man. But, but, but really, I mean, when you talk about El Paso, the other thing I tell people is uh, if you ever want to learn about the region and the environment, not specifically about El Paso, but I believe it applies to El Paso, is read uh, Frederick Katz's book on Pancho Villa. 
Hmm. Uh, it's a thousand and some page book, and it gives the history of Pancho Villa and the Mexican Revolution, but with a f- focus on Chihuahua and the Chihuahuan Desert region, which El Paso is part of. And it talks about how in order to survive in that environment, you know, there were Apaches at the time and all kinds of other things, harsh weather, uh, people had to be resilient. People had to be independent. People had to be self-reliant. People had to work problems out on their own because they were too far from the centers of attention, either from Mexico City, from Austin, or and certainly from D.C. And so I've always told people, I think that's why El Paso produces more poets, more <laughs> writers, more uh, uh, artists, you know, in the arts than any place that I've ever been to. Wow. I, I mean, in, in pro rata basis, considering the population. It is amazing to me how many kids from El Paso go to Stanford and to Ivy League schools. When I went to GW, there were very few Latinos in the law school. And when I say Latinos, I'm talking about Mexican-Americans, Cubans, Puerto Ricans, and others, right? Uh, But in terms of Mexican-Americans, we were a disproportionate number uh, in the East Coast law schools because, you know, some Mm. were small in number. We kind of associated with the Latino kids from Harvard and Yale and Columbia, you know, the Ivy League schools. And there in D.C., of course, the other law schools, uh, whether it be American, Catholic, Georgetown or, or Howard, and and it, it that was the first time. Be, this was long before I moved to El Paso. This is 1971, when I went to law school. Uh, Nixon was still in office. The Vietnam War was raging. I'm mm. a product of that period. And 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 uh, I noticed that disproportionately in each of these law schools, when we would have these La Raza law student meetings, where they all these law school Latinos congregated that there seemed to be three or four from El Paso in each school as compared to any other uh, minority group. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. And, and I said, what, what accounts for this? And then when I moved to El Paso, as I said, I started to notice about the, about the poets and the writers and the, and the artists and, uh, you know, people like that. that uh, and I said, so what accounts for that? And I, I tell people, I think it's that El Paso is so uh, world onto its own as a community out there, that people had to be, as Kat says in his book regarding Chihuahuenses, um, resilient, you know, self-sustaining, and be creative, survive, and to, and to solve problems and do things. Hard living mixed with a sky full of stars that reminds you of humanity and everything else at night. Absolutely. That, right. that will make you write some poetry. Yeah, it will. You know, Charlie was going to read that book you mentioned yeah. until you said a thousand pages. A thousand pages. <laughs> Done. It's Done. worth it. I, I, I'm telling you. You know, I'm a, you don't know this, but uh, I'm a, a, a McMurtry guy. And mm. so yes. he's not afraid to lay down some you, pages. Use some words. So right, right. right. And I Col- I'd like How this. about Coleman McCarthy? No, Cormac. I'm Cormac sorry. McCarthy? Yeah, 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 yes, yes. No, I'm about to be embarrassed. Uh, no, uh, <laughs> I brought up books, or I brought up... Uh, <laughs> See, that's all, the pretty, all, all the, all the pl- pr- pretty horses, Blood Meridian. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, he's a famous writer. Isn't there something we needed to talk about, Trey? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. Going back a little further in time, mm-hmm. you, you are the son of migrant uh, workers. You, you have eight siblings. 
Yes. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. And, that's and you grew up working in the fields across the country, is what your bio said. Well, and that's, uh, I didn't answer Charlie's question. You, I just realized as to what caused me to want right. to get into this business. Right. It was really being a, a product of the migrant farm worker community down in, in the valley. I mean, you know, that's, that's a hard life. I mean, we, sure. you got out of school and you went to pick crops after school and certainly on Saturdays. I'm talking about everything. At that time, the valley was fully agricultural. I'm talking about growing up in the 60s there, late 50s, early 60s. and, and From oranges to cotton. I mean, Oranges to cotton to, um, to carrots to sugar beets to, you know. There was no ruby red grapefruit back then, though, was there? Not yet. No. I don't think so. It hadn't so. been invented. Right. But then uh, it wasn't just uh, uh, work down there. I mean, my family, we were migrant farm workers. We'd migrate. Uh, I mean, I picked potatoes in Idaho, blueberries in Michigan, hmm. cotton in Sykeston, Missouri. Wow. Missouri, wow. as they say over there. Right, right. Um, tomatoes in Indiana. For it was the, like a big caravan? For the, for the Campbell Soup Company. Really? Well, you, you, in those days, you had migrant streams. They call them migrant streams uh, in the documents, you know, people uh-huh. who write about these things. There was the West Coast migrant stream. If people went out to California uh, and there or or Idaho, places like that. And then there was a Midwest migrant stream, people who went up to Indiana or Michigan. Based on the calendar, uh, seasonal needs. The, 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 the particular crops and the season, the seasonal needs. Hmm. And then you also had the East Coast migrant stream, people going out to places like, well, down southeast Florida and and up in the, uh, in the south. Um, I mean, we mainly did the Midwest and the, and the Western. But you thought these stream. folks needed representation? Yes, ultimately, you know, growing up as a migrant, um, you were expected to drop out of school. I had a tremendous peer pressure uh, when I was 16, and my my friends telling me, you are too old, Jose, to be going to school. You need to be out here with us full time. Your family needs you and all that you? sort of thing. Yeah, because I, I, I mean, it was a hard life, and I, and I saw what happened to some of them. Sure. Uh, you know, short lifespan. And... Um, I said, I, and, and, and importantly, this can't be left out of it, suffering discrimination. I mean, we used to be, uh, we would get in caravans, in fact. You know, you just take a truck with a big bed in the back, put a tarp on top, and that's where people piled on. And you went all the way up to Idaho or up to Montana, North Dakota, it was Michigan. The tarp to and, prevent and discrimination. No, to prevent the the, the rain. Oh. But 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 if you stop to go to try to use a bathroom in a in a gas station, all of a sudden the sign would go up out of order, <laughs> um, and you could certainly feel it in in restaurants when you try to go get some hamburgers. Mainly, that'd be impactful. Uh, uh, and certainly in the communities themselves. I mean, we lived for the most part in farm labor. Housing, such as it was, including chicken coops in Indiana, and you lived in a chicken coop yes, at one point. Yes. That's amazing. Do you think about that sometimes when and you're barns? Do you and, still and eat eggs barn? or chicken? Oh yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. he understands. It'd be hard so. to get over that. No. Well, you know, that's amazing. I, I don't think there's anything better than hard work to motivate a young person to go to college. Well, and that's right. And I wanted to become a, ultimately become a lawyer so I could represent uh, my community. And, right. and that's why I spent, you know, I committed to two years of legal services for farm workers. I ended up doing 10. So we were looking at, at your bio, and, and you've been involved with a lot of great organizations and, and still are. 
and uh, just to name a few, you are or were chairman of the Border Legislative Conference, the BLC. Yes. Uh, you've been involved with the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund. Um, the one that we, we were really looking at uh, because we enjoyed the acronym uh, was you are, were one of five U.S. presidential appointees on the 10-member board of directors of the Border Environment Cooperation Commission, mm -hmm. North American Development Bank. Um, can you say the acronym real fast for us? <laughs> Beck Ned Bank. Oh, ah. perfect. I like that. That's what it is. Shortcut it's, it's, it's the Beck. Beck and the Ned Bank. All right. And what exactly does that do? Well, that, that was uh, established after NAFTA in 1994 uh, with a treaty with Mexico to uh, basically uh, look at the infrastructure needs with respect to environmental uh, concerns, uh, the lack of water, the lack of sewer, um, unpaved roads, anything that had an environmental, negative environmental impact on both sides of the border. So the idea was you would set up this border environmental commission that would uh, essentially serve the purpose of identifying potential projects, water projects, wastewater projects. Uh, we've more recently expanded into clean energy, wind farms, funding wind farms, solar, um, on both sides of the border. Uh, and, and so that's what the bank does. The, the Ned Bank, on the other hand, is the bank. It's, a, it's an international bank, <laughs> and it provides the financing, both grants and loans, for some of these projects. So does that position carry over to the new president? <laughs> it president does. Trump? It's a six-year appointment, though. And, um, I mean, I suppose the president could... One of these days, you know, have somebody give me a call and say uh, he would like to have his own person there. Um, but, if he asked you to do it again, but, would but, you? But technically, I, I could just decide, say, I'm going to finish my term, mm -hmm. you know. But there's uh, not, yeah, I mean, I guess there's, there's not a lot of actual interaction. Does, I mean, does that, no. does that make you feel differently about your position there, or would you no. want to keep doing it? No, I want to keep, I want to keep doing it. It, it has a, a good mission and a good purpose, and... Um, I mean, all you have to do, I mean, really what, you're, what, what we're doing is uh, you grew up in Brownsville, you know about colonias, you know about all these unincorporated areas that don't have um, wastewater treatment facilities that uh, use septic tanks if they use them. Um, and the places like we still have in El Paso that don't even have water. Uh, certainly no paved roads, uh, no adequate drainage. And so this funding from the net bank and through the BEC that uh, develops the projects um, is for those purposes. Uh, now we've progressed, as I said, to, to trying to deal with um, solar because that cuts back on the uh, electrical grid costs and it's clean energy and same thing with, with wind farms. We just approved a wind farm um, in Coahuila, Mexico, that state. Senator, I've heard you talk a lot over the years about economic development along the border. And Texas, luckily, during the 2008 recession that we're still, I think, to some degree recovering from, Texas was pretty resilient overall. Uh, Governor Abbott likes to talk about how there are a thousand people moving to Texas each day and the economy's doing well. Mm -hmm. But 
I, is that different along the border? And if it is, what can the state do to encourage more economic development along the border? Well, for starters, it's not the case in the border. The border has always been neglected by the state of Texas, as far as I'm concerned. One of the organizations I belonged to for a long time was one of the founders of it, uh, was a Texas Border Coalition. It still exists to this day. And it's basically a an association of county judges, mayors. Uh, there's a one or two community colleges. I know the South, the McAllen, uh, what's that called? The South Texas Community College is a part of it. And its mission basically is to advocate for border needs in front of the Texas legislature. And and um, so we develop, you know, a legislative agenda like everybody else does. And in, the, in certain areas only, in education, healthcare, uh, job skills development and training and uh, taxation <laughs> because <laughs> and, and, right? and and transportation those are the areas right uh, the, South Texas you being from Brownsville you know this uh, we just don't have the kind of infrastructure in South Texas that you find in other parts of the state uh, that we don't you know, we're wanting an interstate highway for the longest time, that I-69 that has been developed for many, many years. Well, I should uh, say, I'm from Austin. My dad's from Brownsville, oh, so okay. we were always traveling there, and okay. and I had a lot of family there. Yeah. And so I am familiar with what you're talking about, but um, not as intimately as someone from Brownsville. Medical infrastructure, no children's <laughs> hospitals, no women's hospitals, no specialty clinics, no... And the growth has uh, been just explosive. 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 And explosive. to not have those services. Was well, there right. something you're working on this session to uh, remedy that, or is there, is there a way to... Every single session that I've been here, I've, I've had some bills that try to address some of those issues. Um, you know, I've had bills on... Uh, on uh, dealing with the health professional shortage that we find in, in, in border communities is much more uh, uh, exacerbated than in other parts of the state. Uh, lack of doctors, nurses, dentists, you name it, uh, per, popu- per you know, 100,000 population, we have considerably less representation from the medical field and uh, at lack of access to health care. As I said, we don't have the infrastructure of those facilities. That's why a lot of people have to go to Houston, to Dallas, to Galveston to access those services. You can't get them uh, along the border. Uh, we've, we've started to make some strides. I mean, one of the major bills that I think I've been able to get done, accomplished, is, uh, is having uh, our... We first worked on getting our... For, our own medical school, and that was Texas Tech that set up the medical school. And I was involved with that since 1999, advocating for that until we got it. And then when I became senator, uh, one of the bills that I passed was to designate the medical school as a health science center with the understanding that when you get that designation, you can attract additional funds, you have the opportunity to uh, develop uh, separate schools, like, and we have already, since we did the medical school, we've added a, a nursing school, and we're in the process of adding a dental school. Uh, so we want to make that a health science center like the one you find in Houston, in San Antonio, with all of these different health uh, medical facilities that people can access right there in that region. That and so, so that I've had a number of bills yeah. that deal with that. Um, 
You know, I've, I've, I've done a number of bills on public education. One of my, my primary issue, frankly, is education. I guess for somebody like me growing up as a migrant, you know, as I tell migrant kids and other kids when I speak to them, I wouldn't be standing before them if I hadn't gotten some encouragement from a few teachers that would give me books to take on the migrant stream and say, read these while you're gone, because we would leave before school ended and we'd come back after school started. So I would always have to be catching up, right? And, and uh, because I got that encouragement, I was able to be, get interested in education, resist the peer pressure I talked about earlier to drop out of school, and, and, uh, and be able to do something with my life and trying to do things for my community, right? And my community being, by the way, not just the Chicano community. I'm talking about all of Texas and in this country. I mean, I, I, think, I think that uh, I focus on education, on health care, um, being a lawyer. I've done a lot of uh, uh, work on criminal justice reform. Uh, you know, the state bar comes to me with all of its wills, trusts, and estates bills. And similarly, the state bar section on family law comes to me with their family law bills because as county attorney, I, I did a lot of that work uh, on, behalf of, uh, on behalf of the county and the state of Texas. And so I, I, I really am one of those that has a variety of interests. I'm not focused on one single issue. Well, is there a quote? I think we're at that time so, no. that kind of binds them all together. Yeah, let me ask one, one other question. I know our listeners would probably like to know the definition or what this job entails. You're currently the chair of the Senate Democratic Caucus. Yes. Would you tell our listeners what that what, what you do as chair? Well, uh, this is uh, being chair of the organization comprised of the 11 Democratic senators out of 31 senators uh, in the Texas Senate. And my job is to essentially herd cats, um, get them to the meetings, get them to talk about the issues, uh, try to find out where we are on different bills and what our policy position is going to be uh, to try to move Texas forward. And uh, so, I mean, part of the job is to uh, support the good bills and try to Kill the bad bills. Yeah, sounds like patience might be a virtue. Well, uh, <laughs> that, that, that's required. No uh, I mean, when you deal with senators, I don't mind saying, uh, you're dealing with people that are, you know, into a world of their own. And, <laughs> and, um, it's all a ball of yarn. Uh, yeah, all right. That's but, awesome, hurting cats. So, but it's, it's, you know what, it's rewarding. I mean, you, you, you get an opportunity to uh, deal with all of your colleagues on, on, on the issues. And it translates also also across the aisle. Like today, I went and talked to one of my Republican colleagues about a position that the caucus has on a particular bill and what we would like for them to consider and hopefully consider in terms of amendments. Uh, and uh, so it's dealing not just with the Democrats. It's also dealing with the Republicans. All sure. heading towards that balanced budget. Uh, <laughs> Keeps yeah, Texas yeah, moving right. forward, right? That's, right. that's exactly yeah. right. Hopefully we'll get one of those. Um, Senator, we're going to have to wrap up. Uh, the hour is gone? <laughs> well, we, well we, I think we've just scratched the surface I'm of so many things. I'm just trying to get on a roll well, here. I know. I wish, uh, well, we'll have you back. How's well, that sound? Okay, I'll take you up on it. We'd like to have you back. Though. I'll take It'd you up on it. Yeah, we'd love to have you back. And uh, as I mentioned before the show got started, we, want, we wanted you to come armed with a quote to end the show with, and apparently you didn't get the message. But you came up with something pretty good. So if you could share it with us, we'd, we'd love to hear it. 
Well, and it seems to be appropriate for the legislative process, and it's none other than the Rolling Stones. You can't always get what you want. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Senator, thank you for coming on, and we'll, we look forward to having you again. Thank you. I appreciate being here. You've been listening to The Trey Blocker Show. Find the latest episodes at treyblocker.com or from your favorite podcast download app.